the part of math that always interested me wasn't that like crazy, crazy theoretical math. It was just like, oh, how can we use data to drive better decisions? Like, how can simple statistics and computing metrics and just keeping track of shit using numbers, how can that help our, you know, build better products or build better systems? And that's what I learned in systems engineering. Combine that with some of my CS classes, which got me into a little bit more machine learning. And then it started to click in my head of like, oh, this data thing is really cool. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that'll encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash A-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today has worked in various data-related roles, from doing data science work for the U.S. intelligence community to interning at Microsoft and Google's Nest Labs to eventually working as a software engineer at Facebook on the growth team. Over the years, he's been writing about his career journey and the lessons learned from being a job applicant to sitting on the other side of the table as an interviewer. Today, he's here to share some tips with us from his book, ace the data science interview so we can separate ourselves from the competition and breeze past the daunting gauntlet that is the data science interview process. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, Drake's number one stan and the data scientist who moonlights as DJ Lil Singh, Nick Singh. Nick, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on the show today, man. I appreciate having you here. Thanks so much for having me. I know it's been a long time coming. You kept asking me, when's the book going to be done? When are you coming on the podcast? Well, book's done. I'm here and I'm excited to talk and hang out with you. Absolutely, man. Yes. It's interesting, right? So we actually, like you hit me up on this this thing called Podmatch where, you know, podcasts can match with guests. And I was like, oh, okay, this sounds interesting. And I went and looked you up on LinkedIn. I was like, oh, I'm already connected with this guy on LinkedIn. How come I've like, you know, the content has never shown up on my feed. So I went through and just started smashing the like on everything that, that you had posted to ensure that I'd continue getting this uh, content right to my feed. And yeah, it's been a while, man. I've been, you know, really, really enjoying the content you'd be pushing out there. The the pop quiz questions and everything you're doing on Instagram and all that stuff, man. So I'm happy to have you here. Yeah, absolutely. And same way, I've been on your happy hours that you do on Friday and had a good time and connected with other people in the community. So it was a long time coming, but I knew we had to get something together. So I'm excited. Yeah, man. It, it, happy hours are open to you at any time. Anytime you want to swing by, you're welcome. But yeah, let's get to let's get to know a little bit more about you, and then we'll jump into some interesting aspects of the data science interview process. So first, talk to us a little bit about where you grew up and what it was like there. Yeah, I grew up in Northern Virginia, right outside DC. So I was a nerdy kid. I was always into math. Shout out Kumon. 
when I was in high school, I knew I'd be doing something science-y because again, magnet school and Asian parents. But yeah, I, you know, I wanted to do med school type stuff or be a doctor just because I was brown and Indian and everyone else around me did that. Honestly, for no reason, I was, you know, but I realized basically at the end of my high school, I was really into DJing. And actually one of the best parts of DJing was actually kind of running my own business. Like that was my first flavor of it. And, you know, Shark Tank was all the rage, social network, the movie was out and streaming everywhere. And I was like, oh man, you know, I'm already kind of nerdy tech guy. I'm interested in business. Maybe this world of tech, tech startups, data science, maybe there's something here for someone like me. So it's pretty funny. Like I grew up one way thinking maybe I'd do med school or be a doctor. And, you know, I, in a way I am running a business and doing tech startup stuff, even though it's not exactly like social network. Yeah. And it's interesting. Uh, you, you actually started like a, a business in high school. It was something about, it had to do with rappers and yeah. stock markets and some interesting like that. Talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, man. That was my first big portfolio project that I did in college. In my second year of college, it was called rapstock.io. It was a hip hop marketplace for rappers, right? So Let's back up a second. You know, fantasy football, we can draft, you know, football players on your team. I was thinking, hmm, couldn't there be something like this for musicians? Because in the hip hop community, I'm a huge hip hop music fan. We're always arguing about, oh, is this rapper the GOAT, the greatest of all time? Or is this rapper just a fad and he's going to go away next month or next year? He's just riding a wave. This is guy's trash, but people just like him for the time being. I wanted to make a platform that put your money where your mouth was. So it was almost like fantasy hip hop music where you draft different artists, or you could also think about it as a stock market. So using data from Spotify, Spotify play data, I was able to price the artist's value in real time. So basically I was able to tie how well the price of a rapper was compared to their Spotify plays. So this was my first big project I did in my sophomore year of college. And it really exposed me into data, exposed me to APIs, websites, consumer growth, which is kind of what led me to Facebook's growth team eventually. So, I mean, for the audience who doesn't know, growth engineering is this kind of mixture of software engineering, data science, and marketing. It's where you use, you implement A-B tests and you test everything in service to improving a North Star metric, right? So at Facebook, my team, it was about early retention, how well people did in their first two weeks, and basically putting in a bunch of different experiments and cutting data to see, hey, what experiences can we give someone on Facebook so that they would retain and have a really good experience those first two weeks? So that's what I did as a new grad at Facebook, but I just want to trace it back to the first time I really did that kind of data-driven experimentation and growth was when I growth-hacked uh, growth stock to about 2,000 monthly active users. So I just tell this story because you know, we'll talk about this later about portfolio projects and sharing your passion and all that. So, I mean, you asked me already about the rap stock thing. So I just want to kind of connect how that music piece kind of is always weaving in throughout my career and same way with data and same way with growth hacking and marketing. Yeah, definitely uh, going to be excited to talk about kind of your process of ideation to come up with projects and, and you know, ideas for projects. That seems yeah. to be something people struggle with and I mean, you're an example here. You just combine two things that you're already interested in with something that you're trying to get good at. But stay tuned, guys. We're gonna we're gonna be talking a little bit more about that later. So it's funny you mentioned, you know, trying to go the uh, not non-typical Indian path. We could either be a lawyer, doctor, or failure, 
right but i think nowadays i think nowadays lawyer has fallen out of favor and it's like okay data scientist uh, yeah right or software engineer both are up yeah. there why do you think that is man why is it that i mean we're, we're both of indian heritage what is it about I us mean, and, and software and and data science i don't know man i guess i guess it just i don't know it just works out that way it's uh maybe math oriented upbringings you know i was always doing math as a kid growing up and i guess you know asian you know my immigrant parents do something similar in technology so just kind of kind of there so you know i just vibe with it now you know it's, it's really funny you know i was always like ah oh, dad i don't want to be another tech person like you you know maybe i want to be a doctor and then here i am doing very similar tech stuff. Although I'd like to think that I've done something a little different, you know, with the book and, you know, for the last year I haven't been working. So I've definitely, you know, I still have people ask me like, yo, Nick, like this book's awesome. But, you know, actually out of my book launch party here in Northern Virginia, we had some like Daisy Indian parents come ask me like, yo, dude, this book launch party, it's awesome. Book's awesome. But when are you applying to med school? And I was like, what, what are you talking about? You know? So you still get those jokes, but you know, I'm, I'm happy to be in this place. And now that I can kind of control my own destiny, it's not like society or anyone telling me to do this in a, in a way, you know, I am not even a full-time data scientist right now. I'm just doing that book thing. So. Speaking of the book thing, man, like was writing something you always enjoyed doing? Was this something you were always good at? Like, did you think you were ever going to be an author? I had no freaking idea, man. I like don't even comment my own code. So I, I struggled to write documentation. I had no idea I'd write a book. And again, I went to this magnet high school. Yo, let me tell you about this. In college, I studied um, systems engineering, which is sort of like industrial engineering or operations research. And then I minored in computer science. And I only took one liberal arts class at the University of Virginia. That was a class in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences called From Data to Knowledge, where it taught me R. So even the one liberal, liberal arts class I took turned out to be a data science class, you know, in the stats department. So, I mean, I just shied away from it because I thought, man, I'm not creative. I'm not like one of those English poets and, you know, artsy types. I'm not even creative. I used to have all these kind of preconceived notions about myself. And I don't know why part of that included like, oh, I don't write. That's for other people. I like write code and that's about it. I do math. I can't write for shit. But, you know, one thing led to another and uh, I'll talk about this later as well. It's another like kind of reoccurring arc, which is you start small. And I started with writing on LinkedIn and then blog posts and then a newsletter. And then suddenly I had like 10 pretty popular articles that talked about different parts of the job hunt. And I'm like, wait, why don't I just combine this together? Maybe we're like, a quarter of the way to a book. So it didn't happen all in one day, but definitely it was not something that was planned for me. So I definitely, you know, if there's any people who are technical in the audience who are interested in writing or content creation and they don't know where to start, they can always hit me up on LinkedIn or on my website or whatever, because I'm telling you straight up, it was never a goal or I never thought I'd be doing this in a million years. Just culminated in, in an awesome, comprehensive book, Ace Today, a science interview. Definitely, you guys, check this out. We're going to get into some aspects of it shortly here. You kind of hinted at it a little bit already, but wh how did you get interested in data science? Like, was I mean, I, I, I'm a bit older than, than you. I'm 38. So when I was coming up, data science wasn't a term. It was like predictive analytics, predictive modeling, things like that. Was this something that 
you were exposed to when you're young. I guess talk to us about that. Like how this interest formed. Yeah. So when I was in preschool, I was building some linear rig. No, just kidding. No, even <laughs> dude, you're 38. I'm 26. Okay. And when I was in school, I graduated 2017. Yes. The word data science was a thing, but it wasn't really a thing taught at the undergraduate level. It was understood. Oh yeah. That's for PhDs or master's folks. So much so that, you know, I had to declare my major in 2013 when I'm starting college I don't even think I knew about the word data science in 2013 when I was starting to declare my major. But if you think about it, my major of systems engineering, this combination of business, math, modeling, a little bit of coding, simulation, that's very much similar to what data scientists actually end up doing. So I guess I would like to think like systems in, or industrial engineering is almost like the precursor to data science. So I didn't even know what I was getting into. But I'll tell you that how I sort of found my way was just always being interested in math being interested in numbers and math is different. Like I'm not talking about some fancy schmancy set theory or like topology. I'm talking about just like, Oh, stats. I'm talking about just being numbers driven, just like thinking about it. And that's kind of why growth engineering always appealed to me too, because it's like building products in a data driven way. So the part of math that always interested me, wasn't that a crazy, crazy theoretical math. It was just like, Oh, how can we use data to drive better decisions. Like how can simple statistics and computing metrics and just keeping track of shit using numbers, how can that help our, you know, build better products or build better systems? And that's what I learned in systems engineering. Combine that with some of my CS classes, which got me into a little bit more machine learning. And then it started clicking my head of like, oh, this data thing is really cool. My best experience was computer vision. I took a computer vision class. I did projects with it in, hack, in a hackathon. This is around when self-driving started to be a thing as well, where it wasn't just like some random thing that they did in a lab, but Waymo was there, Uber, Lyft, Cruise, these things were coming out. And, you know, people could actually in 2017 with a Raspberry Pi train a little RC model to run a maze. And I did some other interesting work with computer vision, not, not self-driving work, but just some interesting graphics work with computer vision and augmented reality type stuff. And I was just like, wow, there's something here about the combination of math, CS programming, either whether it's to make better decisions or to build better products, you know, through algorithms. And, and I guess that kind of, there's a bit of a line in the sand. There's, there's the, the math you're talking about, which is just kind of math for math's sake. And there's math as uh, applied towards business and has more practical applications. And, and you talk about this a lot as well in, in your content, just like the business side of data. So, so what is this business side of data? Can you kind of paint that picture for us? Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's hard. I mean, it's basically everything that's not just literally writing that linear regression model, right? So there's no package you can import that says, hey, at Facebook, how do we increase retention? There's no increased retention package. Yeah, there's packages to build models and there's tools to run SQL queries, but there's no import wire customers not staying on our platform, <laughs> you know? And I think that business and product sense, you know, I'm not, not big on these labels. So you even asked me like, why am I into data science? And I gave this wishy-washy answer of like how I'm interested in like a whole bunch of different things that underlie the word use data, but aren't necessarily like cut data science, you know, same way I'd like to think here, just uh, remind me again, the question, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Yeah, no, no, I just asked him about like the, the, I guess, yeah. you say the business side of, of data. Is, yeah, uh, man, I, I can't draw a clean line. I, I guess yeah. it's just everything about like, why are we doing what we're doing and really trying to understand what the business stakeholders wanting and trying to understand like what, forget the modeling technique we're using. Like, what are we actually trying to model? Why does it matter? 
It's really the why. It's not the how. So I think that's what I think about when I say business side. I know I know that's nebulous, right? Because maybe the why isn't even a business thing, but just taking a step back. And I think it's something I learned in my training as a systems engineer, which is always just thinking systems and always question the motives and think about stakeholders, never just think about the specific thing you're engineering. But I I always emphasize that in the book because honestly, that's what these case interview questions and product sense interview questions and data science interviews to ask even. It's like sometimes not about the answer you give, but more about like, hey, are you thinking about all the things that go around the actual modeling piece that you're doing? You get into a lot of great stuff uh, in the book. So let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, first thing, let's, you know, let's talk about some, some of the advice you give on the resume, right? So I know you share four principles to live by for a data science resume, but let's, you know, instead of going through all of those, I know that they're, they're a bit long and, you know, we want to leave something for the reader to check out in here, but which one of these principles I, do you see violated most often? And it's, yeah, man, it's, it's all about the neutral information. It's crazy. Well, it's crazy to see what people put on there. And then I ask them a straightforward question like, hey, like, do you think this makes you look good? And they're like, you know what? Not really. So first of all, people might put like, I mean, no one's going to put actively harmful information, but there's just so many interesting things. Like, for example, if you had like a 3.0 GPA and you went to MIT, okay, that's cool. But if you had a 3.0 GPA and you, you know, you just went to an average school, maybe just don't even list, list your GPA, right? Because there's nothing wrong with a 3.0. And I know there's a lot more to you than grades, but it's still like, hey, they might be expecting something more. But, you know, if you went to an Ivy League school, hey, maybe a 3.3 is fine. But other way, other places, they might expect you to be like, you know, the top of your class. So I'm just trying to say like, hey, double think about like what, what you write on your resume. Does it make you look good, neutral or bad? And even neutral is kind of bad. You know what I mean? It's is because people are only scanning your resume for about 10, 15 seconds. So even something neutral, something fun, something random, that if I was just casually trying to get to know you as a person is fine as a detail to have, but it's just kind of distracting from what's actually good about you. So for example, we're in the tech industry. We're all speaking in English or we're speaking in code. Why do you need to list that, you know, Hindi, Telugu, Spanish, Tamil, French? Like we don't need any of that. No, none of these jobs ever talk about that. Right. And you might be thinking, oh, Nick, that's just like one line. But you look at how many lines that are extraneous like that, that actually, you know, no one's ever asking for people, right. That they know word. I mean, yo, you're a data scientist applying for senior data. Like I'm sure, you know, we're way past that. Even something like maybe Git. I mean, at some level you don't need it. Right. And there's just levels to it. So the same way someone might write like skills, source control, yeah. Okay. You know, get, I mean, that's like a table stakes, right? No. And suddenly you realize how many random things people write on their resume, which bear, has no bearing random certifications. They did volunteering. Volunteering is great. And I'm not trying to say that, that, you know, as a person that's good, but like sometimes people list so many random volunteering or leadership experiences that have nothing to do with data science, have nothing to do with anything, quite frankly, that only maybe sometimes actively confuses someone who's trying to scan your resume. So I'm always a big fan of people trimming down the resume, making it look leaner because definitely people always feel like, man, that other guy has so many real good accomplishments. Let me like jam pack my stuff, even if it's like fake or kind of just like fluff. And I think when you have 10 or 15 seconds, it's actively harmful to just take whatever little signal you have and then make it even harder to parse by putting things, you know, are fluffy. If that makes sense. Uh, absolutely. Man. So it's like the things that you put on a resume, like if you're 
putting something just because like, oh, I've got blank space here. I need to I should probably put some there. Let me just put these random things like word or get or whatever. That's kind of like, don't do that. Right. Is, yeah. is, it, is it better to have blank space on a resume than neutral information? Definitely. And I mean, definitely if, if, if your resume is just half a page, then maybe put on some of those things. But generally, most people I've seen have had fine resumes and still stuffed it up. And you can play with margins. You can play with spacing. You can make the few things you've done bigger. Let's say the headings, like there's ways to make it look nice. Okay. But uh, so I'm almost always skeptical of like, oh, well, what if my resume looks empty? I'm just like, yo, you're using 11 size font. Like if you just use 13 size font, which is not, no one's going to be like, dude, look at you. It's like normal to read 13, 14 size font. These are the small things you can do to just fill up your resume in that sense. But basically putting in fluff is just never the answer. And I saw someone list 30 skills they had and they wrote SVM, PCA, linear regression, logistic, just listed everything. And I'm like, how are you skilled in everything? Like, what, what is this section even about? Right. So if you want to mention these skills, and I know some people are like, yo, but Nick, like I think source control is important or companies do look for people who know, let's say time series, go talk about how you use those skills in your portfolio project or in your last job, like contextualize those keywords. Cause I know some people are trying to always hit these keywords, go put them in where they belong, but don't just ever list these random, random skills just to like, help just to like think you'd look better to an ATS, which is like a automated system application tracking system. You know, that, that game is just not a good game to play because at the end of the day, it's often humans who are looking at your resume and they want to just parse in 10 seconds. It's a good point about make like if you're including stuff on your resume, just to make sure that you can actually speak to it and speak about it. I remember I was interviewing somebody for a position and she had put uh, that she worked on a project in, the, in, in that project she had done an SVM with a linear kernel, right? And I was like, oh, great. Talk, talk to me about SVM real quick. Like, you know, how's the algorithm work? What's the kernel trick do? And yeah. she just completely froze, couldn't ask the question. She's like, oh, well, I, I was just working on a, you know, little piece of that. Yeah. And I was like, that's a huge, like, why would you do that? Why would you put something on your resume thinking I'm not going to ask you about it? Uh, right. So, so what are your thoughts around that? Like, you know, people maybe fabricating is too harsh the word, bullshitting on the resume. I don't know. Like, <laughs> It happens and good interviewers know better. So I tell people in the book, like, hey, people are going to ask you about your projects. That's like literally one of the first things most people ask, like, hey, tell me about a project. And then usually they're going to push you just a little bit. Oh, use linear regression. Tell me some of the assumptions behind linear regression or like, hey, like, you know, how did you prevent overfitting? Like, this seems like something would overfit. And they're like, oh, I don't really know. You know, it's like, oh, you didn't think about overfitting. You didn't th think about model complexity, you know? So often, like I tell candidates, like, hey, you know, make these projects meaty on your own end because there's nowhere to hide. And once you're actually able to explain your projects well, you can defend your choices. You really know what you're talking about. Then, you know, you're, you're going to sail through these interviews. And people might be thinking like, oh, but I totally can explain my projects. But honestly, like even I sometimes forget about my own details in my project, right? So this is just another one of those, like I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt. Like, hey, maybe it's been a while since you have done SVMs or maybe it's been a while since you've read about the kernel trick. But at least before you're on the interview circuit, refresh yourself on what's on your own resume, which seems kind of weird, right? Because you did it. So I want to give people a benefit of the doubt. Like, hey, if you worked on a project a year or two ago, you might not remember every detail, but definitely that's something to fix. 
before you start interviewing. That shouldn't be something Harpreet, the interviewer, has to call you out on where you're like, oh, shoot, I actually don't really know much. And I just imported it from Scikit-Learn and it worked. You know, <laughs> that's, that's the thing you just don't want. Let's get into uh, the part of your book, Ace of Data Science Interview, which you guys should check out. Excellent book. This thing is uh, going to be a lifesaver if you're in the interview circuit right now. Uh, you talk about your philosophy for building out projects. So talk to us about what this philosophy is for projects. Yeah, man. Honestly, to make these kick-ass portfolio projects, what you got to do is kind of build for the end person in mind. Okay, so who is a decision maker giving you these interviews? Often it might be a hiring manager or recruiter. And often you might have like networked with them or sent them a cold DM or LinkedIn message, or you just apply it online and they're looking at your resume for 10 seconds. Basically, the point is you want to actually impress these folks, right? So if you use overly technical jargon or you just make something that's not very exciting, that doesn't show me something about you, you do a project that everyone else has done, such as like use the basic Kaggle data set on from Titanic about who's going to like uh, survive the Titanic disaster, or maybe you're doing that handwriting recognition task, which is a classic computer vision task where it's, it's called the MNIST data set where you can recognize handwriting numbers. You know, if you're working on those kind of projects and putting that on your resume, that's so transparent because everyone knows that's taught in computer vision 101 or data science 101. So I think one thing to make people stand, to stand out is think like, think backwards. First think about like, what's, what's something that you like you know, to do, or what, what's something you like to do that you think other humans would also like or enjoy. Right. So, man, I love food. Okay. I love food. I could, uh, I love Indian food in particular. Right. And there's like a database of Indian food recipes. So I would start there in thinking about what's a cool project. And guess what? A lot of other people like Indian food too. Right. Can I do something there rather than doing something really obscure? Maybe I can start there and that tells something about me that, oh, I'm a foodie. I like this. And I did some really creative project that probably no one else has done. I mean, I don't think other people have done paneer analytics or chicken tikka masala analytics, you know? So that's one way to be unique. That's one way to show your passion. Plus these things usually yield pretty interesting visualizations, infographics that you can up really wrap up neatly into a GIF and send that in emails that'll catch people's attentions. Or you could put it on Reddit, get some attention that way. You could put it on LinkedIn, get some attention, or maybe, you know, going back to that RC car, let's say you're really interested in self-driving cars, go make that RC robot car. Sure. It might not be that unique, but if you just do it and you make like a 10 second TikTok of it, of like what actually happened and show the car driving itself, you know, that stands out. And honestly, these people on the other side are humans at the end of the day. So if you're going to email me like an RC car project, that's self-driving and I'm a robotics company or self-driving company or computer vision company, I'm like, yo, this person is like going above and beyond. They're doing something that's not based on their schoolwork. They actually made something. This person seems like someone who's a hacker, you know, as a builder, not just someone who's just trying to check boxes. So I think that's kind of my philosophy. I know it's a bunch of different smaller things that I actually kind of break into the book, like smaller points, but just kind of this idea of like building something that's interesting, that will interest somebody else. And that shows something about you. And remember, that's what Rapstock did for me. I love hip hop music. I told people sign up on a platform, start betting. You know, I got to, you know, we just casually talk about hip hop in my interviews, which were supposed to be technical, but we'd just be talking about Kanye West at the end of the day. And people really was like, oh yeah, that's the guy who growth hacked that startup, used data. I checked out his thing before we even interviewed. I made an account. Like that separates you so much further from other people who are just 
showing some random certification or showing some random Kaggle competition that everyone else has already done. It speaks to a point there that you lay on the book as well, just picking a project that makes for an interesting story. And yeah. know, the examples you laid out there they definitely speak to that. How about for people who are career transitioners, right? Let's say somebody's maybe they've they've got some technical background maybe they were in it or they're in software engineering or maybe they studied for example like me i studied math and statistics in grad school but i was an actuary and biostatistician for a few years like right. better part of a decade and then switching into data science is a little bit of a different world for sure is the the portfolio project enough or like or should people pursue those those certs and things like that I think they should do everything, right? So if you have more time, do more things, but definitely, so it's it's hard to say what's enough, right? Because it's it's very, I mean, no one's going to tell you like, this is the one thing that pushed you over the edge. But definitely, if you're coming from an actuarial background or you have a PhD in something like physics, you know, which is very math oriented, but maybe not the same kind of math that we're doing in machine learning, you know, for those folks, building a portfolio project is very good. And I think there's a way for them to do something that kind of is like a, like a bridge so I, I talk to people in healthcare. So there's all kinds of interesting healthcare data sets. So it's okay if you are more of a biostatistician or you are just, you know, maybe, maybe you're literally just a pub, you're studying public health, right? You can still dive into these COVID data sets, for example, and visualize them in Tableau and write SQL queries to find some insights. So I think portfolio projects is useful for everyone and career switchers can intelligently kind of position and pick something that's not super niche and nerdy in their own domain, but something that's still more accessible, right? So if you hit me with like, oh, I'm in public health and I'm studying this really, really, really random data set about like, let's say you're a biology major and you have this random data set about salamanders. It's like, okay, that's cool, whatever, right? But if you could somehow be like, yo, I have this background biology, but I'm doing a bunch of like image recognition on salamanders, which turns out to not that be that different than the kind of image recognition we do in a med tech startup for x-rays or something like that. You know, that that's a way to kind of slowly bridge yourself. So even though it's, you know, we're studying salamanders, Hey, I'm able to speak to image recognition and how your business that's doing handwriting recognition for medical forms can benefit from my background, even though I'm just a biologist, for example, right? So I think portfolio projects is huge. And I think there's ways to intelligently bridge that gap and find data sets. So even if you're always in the nonprofit world or doing a research world, there are, you know, for example, public health, who's always just working on nonprofits, there are actual data sets on insurance companies and like insurance. And the closer you get to the money, the more businesses are interested, right? Because they're like, oh, if you can analyze insurance rates, maybe you can analyze my customer pricing plans, even though I'm something else of a type of business, you know? So I just, I think people, career switchers don't think more as creatively as they could on some of these things. And I don't blame them. I don't think that they're not creative. I think that they're just too bogged down of like this kind of inferior inferiority complex of like, ah, oh, is this enough? You know, maybe I'll just stay in my lane. And like, I don't know, I'm just a public health major. What do I know about analyzing insurance rates in the U.S.? you know, and it's like, nah, go for it. Right? You know, something more than me who knows nothing about health insurance, you know? So yeah, that's my two cents there. Yeah, absolutely love that. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's like, you know, when you're on that previous career path, like, you know, you're, it's like you're climbing like this ginormous tall mountain, you might be two thirds the way up and realize that, okay, well, there's a better path to get there or a better, more efficient route to get to the top. But in order to get to the other route, you got to climb down a little bit and move up to the side. You got to be comfortable taking a few steps back, going lateral, 
just so you can move up efficient path. It's that stochastic gradient descent. It's that simulated kneeling. We call it go. explore, exploit. Uh, go, yeah, different ways of saying the same thing. Multi-arm exactly. bandit problem. All, all the same thread on, hey man, sometimes you just got to break out of your own lane, build some own projects on your, by yourself and to be able to bridge yourself to a new path or career. Yeah, man. And it, you know, it's never too late. Like I got my first real job in data science. I was, it was 2000 beginning of 2019. So I was, I was already like 35 and a half years old. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's like, all right, well, I've led two data science teams, built one from the ground up. So you could do it. Jeez. Just got to put, yeah. put in the work, my friends. Uh, so here's a question that I get asked a lot and it's for people who build out projects and they always worry about this this idea of having to demonstrate business value with the with the project because maybe they do do the project and they feel good about the project and now this other inferiority complex kicks in like well i did a project but it wasn't for an actual job or an actual company so how do we demonstrate business value with a project especially if we don't have you know on the job experience and are doing a project to to demonstrate our, our technical ability yeah, man, it, it, it is definitely tough. I don't have like a easy, quick fix answer. A few things I could say is one, you can always measure the popularity of something, right? And I know that that's not exactly business value, but hey, if you can say, hey, I visualized my cooking recipe stuff on my blog and got 10,000 views. Hey, that's there's no business value in that I analyzed chicken tikka masala, but that's still something to be like, oh, I went viral on Reddit. And I got 10,000 views on my project. That's still something of a way to quantify. And at the end of the day, they want to know that you built something for others. And guess what? There are actual jobs like data journalism jobs, whose, whose role is to just visualize data like that and make it interesting. And it also speaks to, I mean, this business impact stuff is just, just speaking to words. You did something. Did it actually matter? Right? So maybe the metric for that really cool visualization or GIF isn't necessarily money earned or money saved. Maybe it really is just views because my company, my old company, SafeGraph, we'd build stuff just to get views, like for marketing collateral of like really interesting data insights from our own data. Like that's a thing. Infographics are a thing and people get hired to build infographics or build really cool viz. So I'm trying to say like, I don't want ever people to feel like, oh, because I don't work at a business, I can't like quantify that I did something really because I think it is business value, but I think it's more just like value. It's not just like, did you build something that actually made it out of the GitHub portfolio, pro like out of the, your GitHub and actually like went live. And honestly, even if your stuff's just in GitHub, you got 200 stars on your repo. That that's, that's a metric right there. Right. So yeah, I think there's different creative ways. And I think it, it boils down to the different types of projects you build. But I think another thing is, remember we talked about going backwards, right? Try to build a portfolio project that's helpful to somebody. Go on their Reddit and then post about it. That's one way to build value, right? So even if it's not something that's commercial, like, hey, I built a subreddit explorer that like recommends you tell me your five favorite subreddits and I found you two more that are just like it that you don't subscribe to. I mean, there might not be business value. You might not have made dollars, but you could still write, hey, 900 people used it and went viral on Reddit and led to 10,000 more subreddits to be joined, right? Suddenly companies are like, oh, okay, cool. He didn't charge for that, but this guy's recommendations helped drive these actions on Reddit. Hmm, 
maybe he could work on Amazon ads or Facebook ads, or maybe they can work on my Netflix recommender because he did this Reddit recommender for subreddits, if that makes sense, right? So there's just ways to think backwards. And as long as you're solving problems for a community, there's a way to get you know, impact. And then same way, even if it's not a real problem, but more like, yo, people would love to know something about hip hop music and lyrics. And like, what are they, what are the most shouted out car brands in hip hop lyrics? You know, people are shouting out Lamborghinis, people are shouting out their bands. You can, you can do a simple NLP project on that and post it to our hip hop heads, the hip hop community on Reddit. And that, that itself is like no commercial value, but that's still something really, really cool. So I think yeah, let's go back. Let's step away from business impact and let's just talk about impact in general if you if you don't work at a business. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that topic you're talking about hip hop and, and talking about most uh, common car brands. I interviewed somebody on my podcast, though that interview is not yet uh, released or might, maybe it's released. It was with uh, Fabrice Mesador and he did a analysis of hip hop songs with machine learning and AI and he applied natural language processing to hip hop lyrics in order to find common topics that, that come up. Yeah. Uh, so it's just, it's all about just, look, if you're interested in something or you're good at something, let's say, all right, career transitioner, and you're trying to transition into data science from your career, this is what you do. In quotes, put whatever your current title is, right? And then space, in quotes, put whatever industry you're in, and then space, in quotes, machine learning. Type that into Google and see what comes up. You're going to come up with a ton of use cases or white papers that are just, just read them and come up with some ideas and think about them creatively. Like, oh, okay, this person was doing this there. Sounds like something that I'm doing over here. Maybe I could take a piece of that, apply it here and see what happens. Right. And then when you yeah. get into the interview, then you can say, all right, well, I was doing this thing in my current job, this particular way before, but then I did some research and realized that I can apply machine learning or data science methodologies to it. And then I started doing it this way. And for myself, I was able to save X amount of hours per week, which translated into X amount of hours per year times my hourly rate, which was how much I saved the company or how much more productivity I you know, created for the company with my freed up time, whatever, man, just get creative with it and make it make sense. And and that's, you know, it, it's just, I love that. That's so practical and tangible and same way, just riffing off that, do that same thing, what you're interested in data set. Because mm-hmm. before I did a Google search, I didn't think there'd be an Indian recipe data set, which I could do NLP on or exploratory data analysis on. I just thought, Oh, I like Indian food. That's about it. I didn't know that people had curated data sets on that. And internet's a big place. So astronomy, basketball, hip hop music, cooking, biology, there's, there's data sets on everything, just a Google search away. So the machine learning approach is great. But if you're just looking for data to start with, that's another way to do it. And you can curate your own data set, believe it or not. You can go oh, out there and start making your word. own data. My friend and community member, Eric Sims, curated a data set about the winners of like the National Cheese Award or something like that. He, the cheesiest data set ever, he calls it. And it, it was just data he created himself with just different types of cheese and, you know, what metal they won or whatever, right? You can create data yourself. You just, you know, got to be a little bit yeah. initiative. Exactly. And you can also um, scrape data. That's another thing, especially if you want to show off that you have some software engineering skills, because data scraping is a real thing. It's alive. A lot of companies have to do it at some point or another. So go scrape your own interesting data set. That also, that that looks kindly on you because it's like, oh, wow, you actually care enough about this problem that there, a data set didn't exist and you went and 
did that thing, it shows you're more of like an end-to-end problem solver. So that's, you know, even more kudos to you if you can scrape your own data set, you make up your own data. Thank you very much. Let's move into another topic you you discuss in your book, uh, which I got, recommend you guys check out, AC Data Science Interview. Great book. If you want to, AC Data Science Interview. <laughs> to ace the Data Science Interview. And the case, when you hear that, please edit that out. Uh, when you, if you want to ace the Data Science Interview, check this out. So you talk about cold emailing in your, in your book. So what is a cold email? Is that just when I message somebody hi on LinkedIn and leave it at that? Yeah, exactly. You should just say hi, sir. And then that's about it. No, of course not. You got to, so a cold email, it's like, as opposed to a warm introduction where you have someone who, you know, introduce you, it's like where you write to a stranger, but you got to write like a crisp, crisp message, you know, that shows who you are, why you're relevant and why you're reaching out to them, you know, and you're not reaching out to them just for five minutes to chat. You're reaching out to them about a specific job or a specific question you have. And that question shouldn't be like, how do I break into data science? It should be like, Hey, I saw you're a data scientist at a healthcare company. I study public health. I did this project and this project. I'm really interested in this open role. I want to talk to you about it for 10 minutes. Now that's a crisp three sentence email that gets a point across that shows you're relevant. You've done work, you look them up and you know what you're talking about. And you're actually someone who might be a good fit and not just someone random asking about a very general, vague, Googleable question. I was uh, reading a book earlier this morning by Eric Barker called Barking Up the Wrong Tree, Why Everything You Know About Success is Wrong. And in that book, he dedicates a few pages there to, to finding a mentor. And the number one thing he says is don't ask a mentor a question that you can Google, right? That's, yeah. yeah. Like that's just a waste of, of minutes, right? That's just a way to yeah. get your, uh, your message tossed in the trash and, and somebody, you know, considering you to not be uh, very serious about stuff. So who is it that we should be cold emailing, right? Let's say, let's say, let's, let's put some context around it. Let's say I, I saw this awesome job on LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn to apply for the job. We'll talk about maybe why we shouldn't use easy apply a little bit later, but I apply for the job. And then I start looking for people in that company. Should I go and message like an individual contributor, data scientist, and have them look at, you know, my, my, my profile or do I message the CEO? Like, who on yeah. the spectrum do I reach out to? Yeah, honestly, so I've had good luck with recruiters who are technical recruiters. And I've also had decent luck with hiring managers. At smaller companies, you can reach out to a CTO or CEO, depending on how small it is. I think you have to reach out to multiple people. So once you realize that, like, hey, it's a numbers game, I hate to say it, it's a numbers game, you know, it starts, stops to be that important on like who, because you're probably going to want to reach out to all, you know, at least the hiring manager, maybe a technical lead and a recruiter, you know, usually at least three of those need to happen to even have some chance of this working out. Right. So it is a numbers game. And I feel like IC contributors often might not be so great at email or might not be so well-versed in fielding these messages, but recruiters for a living are sending these kind of cold messages out and looking for candidates. So if you're a strong applicant, it usually works well. So even though they're swamped, it's this kind of paradox of even though they're swamped, because they're swamped in their email inbox, constantly doing and sourcing candidates, maybe it'll work out better than an IC person who's like, ah, another email. I'm going to ignore this, you know, or, Hey, I'll get to it three days from now, but Hey, they're not maybe. So when, when I was doing technical roles, I didn't really care about my email. 
because no one, no, no one important would really ever email me. You know what I mean? But when I was on the sales and marketing side for different jobs, it's like, oh, I lived in my email and I think recruiters live in their email. And then same way goes to the CTO or CEO. They actually live in their email and they are actually always trying to hire because a big part of these smaller companies is hiring, especially at fast growing startups. So I think, you know, you can have luck in all three of them. The key is don't write the same message to all three of them. Actually show like, hey, recruiter, I know you're looking for this kind of role. I'm a good fit. Hey, hiring manager, you're all about time series or you're all about, you know, spark. Check out my spark experience. Like, let me go be on your team, you know? And then same way to the CEO. Hey, CEO, you're an entrepreneur who loves data and music and you're running a music data startup, look at my portfolio project. Look at the gumption I have to like even write you an email. Like you want to talk to me, right? Usually that, that kind of message of like a very like action oriented thing works well to a leader. The recruiter thing is like, Hey, I'm literally for this job, like put me in your system. And then for a hiring manager, it's like, Oh, wow. I'm not just talking to you. Cause I like your company and it's a generic company. That's huge. Like Uber. I'm writing to you because I see you're on the Uber surge pricing team and check out this really cool demand forecasting thing I built on the side, you know, and I clearly read your blog that you did on Uber's technical blog around surge pricing. That's why I'm talking to you, sir, right now. Yeah. I absolutely love that because I think most people send cold emails and they make it all about them, right? And the, the, the people need to come to grips with the fact that nobody wants to talk to you about you. They want, to yeah. talk to, they want to talk to you about them. So if you go do your research, do your homework and understand kind of, like you said, that great example with the Uber tech blog and, and things like that, you're talking to them about them and how awesome they are. And then you're just adding a little nugget of, oh, by the way, I've done something similar to what you're already excellent at. Right, yeah. Check it out. And and one note is, you know, if you do too much flattery, it doesn't work. So I want to just spin it a little bit, which is mm-hmm. they want to talk about them. But not like, oh, wow, you're so awesome. You're so awesome. By the way, you should interview me because I'm so complimentary. It should be, you're awesome. I like the problem you're solving and I can help, right? Because at the end of the day, it's still about them, but it's about like, yo, I'm going to solve your business problem, recruiter. I'm going to fill this open position you have. Or, hey, hiring manager, you care about demand forecasting. I'm all about that. Or CEO, you're looking for people in general who are actually passionate and believe in the company mission. And guess what? I can prove here, here, and here that I'm a right fit. You know, so in that way, it's like you got to compliment them, but you also got to go like, hey, compliment plus solve their problem. And people are pretty open about their problems. You you can see it on their technical blogs or what the company's trying to do. So much, man. Those great, great tips there. So, I mean, this book is so awesome. Ace the Data Science Interview. You cover like pretty much every aspect of the data science interview from resumes to projects to cold emails to all the technical stuff, probability stats, machine learning, SQL coding, product sense, and case studies and all that stuff. So it's definitely awesome. You guys check it out. We're not going to go through the technical stuff in this conversation because that's boring, but let's talk about behavioral part of the, of the interview process. I feel like people tend to over-optimize on the technical stuff and then they get disappointed to realize that actually the technical stuff was only probably about 20% of the interview and the other 80% was not that. So I've, I've le- noticed a lot of people that are new to the you know industry or new data scientists who are all up in their head thinking, oh man, like mad that everything's, you know, think about algorithms in their sleep. They think that these behavioral interview questions are just fluffy bullshit. Why do you think folks have this misconception? Well, because... If there's no way to like study for it, then might as well be fluffy, right? Except guess what? That's that's freaking wrong because there is a way to actually improve your own performance. And I think that's why it comes back down to what you said is 
people might not even realize that they can improve their own performance. So they're like, ah, it's just pseudoscience or just like whatever, we're going to wing it. And things I can prepare for, like the SQL questions or the stats knowledge or the machine learning knowledge, I'm, I'm going to worry about that. But I think that people, you know how you mentioned that people over-optimize for the technical interview? I, I've seen people just not even optimize correctly for the interview process. A lot of people just think they can show up or like they study for a week and then they'll give an interview and they don't realize how many different moving parts there are, right? Because even remember when I'm building my portfolio projects, Months before I'm even interviewing, I'm still thinking about what kind of jobs I want to interview for and what kind of story I want to tell to that hiring manager. I'm thinking about that when I'm building my project months in advance, right? So I think just overall, from if there's that one message, it's like, yo, there's so many different parts of this interview process, whether it's behavioral or technical or even things that come before the interview that can be optimized. But you're right. Amongst technical people, behavioral is seen even more fluffy. I think that one thing that would serve people well is like, you remember that example you gave in the beginning of the interview, which was, hey, people do projects, but then might forget their own details about it. It's like, I'm going to call that a behavioral interview thing of like, hey, you've done all this great work. Why don't you know about it yourself? Right. Or why can't you recall it? Why can't you speak to it intelligently? You know, so I think a big, you know, people have heard about the star format, situation, task, action, result, a way of doing structured storytelling. And we cover this in the book as well in the behavioral interviews chapter. But basically you want to be able to tell these stories about your different projects in a really crisp 90 second way. And it's really hard to come up with that story right on the spot. But you kind of realize, should realize and make like a grid of like, hey, you've had three work experiences and two major projects. And you know that most questions come into maybe five or six categories. What went well, what didn't go well, Tell me about something about the people behind it and tell me about something about the result, like the business impact. And then tell me something about more of the tech, like what was challenging the tech or what was cool about the tech, right? So you kind of know there's maybe only 10 different behavioral interview questions, which we kind of list in the book. And you kind of know that, hey, you just, for each of these things, you got to say the situation, task, action, result. You got to make a grid, 10 by four, put 40 little bullets in there and you're done, right? So people, this is where people realize like, oh, I mean, maybe that's, fluffy to some, but then once they start putting some structure on it, they're like, oh, wow, that doesn't sound so fluffy at all. Like that's making sense. Structured storytelling, you know, the 10, like, let's go, let's make a system out of this. Let's make sure we never falter. So I talk about this more in the book, but I think I just want to like, make sure people who are listening realize, like, don't think it's fluffy just because there's no structure, because there's definitely a way to structure it. And there's definitely a way to improve your own answers, right? And it can come from even before you're on the interview job hunt. It could come from portfolio project time. We're thinking strategically about the behavioral interviews. I think I, I noticed that my mentees seem to struggle with this, this tell me about yourself question. This is one of those places where maybe the star format doesn't apply, right? But you guys have a framework that you talk about in the book. I guess at a high level, can you uh, share a, a bit of that framework for how you would answer that question? Yeah, so definitely it's it's a little bit about your past, who you are right now, and your future. Your past tells me a few of your accomplishments that you've done, but don't don't go down your resume just listing everything you've done. Tell me the past that's actually relevant to the current situation. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing today and then the future. The future should line up kind of neatly with what the role you're interviewing for is and the type of company it is, right? I think once people realize that, like this kind of past, present, future framework, because I mean, that's a story that's linear and people deal in stories really well. They don't want to just list your, hear your resume. They want to hear you tell a story. 
once you can tell that kind of story well and keep it into 90 seconds, you start doing really, really better. And what's really funny is, again, this is one of those where people think it's fluffy. People think there's no way to improve. First of all, people think there's no way to even botch this question because it's like, oh, it's about me. How am I going to mess up talking about me? But again, you said with your own mentees, you notice people suck at this. And I've also seen that too, like meet with really smart, talented data folks who just can't even pitch themselves. And I'm like, I pitch them better than they can pitch themselves in about two minutes when I look at their resume. I'm like, why didn't you mention this? And I think it's just this amount of forethought of like, hey, maybe we can structure it. And maybe the future and the key part is that future part, make it actually tie into the company and their position, right? And same way, the parts of your past and present, make it a story that actually lines up sort of neatly to the future, you know, because if you already know what the ending is going to be, oh, the ending is I'm perfect for this job because it's exactly what I'm looking for. Only mention the past and the current that actually like lines up with that. You know, don't tell them about how your past was astrophysics. If this is a job that has nothing to do with it, unless there's a lot of math and maybe it's an ML role, ML theory role, ML research role where, oh, suddenly your past is an astrophysics researcher does lend itself well, you know? So I think people just have to think a little bit more strategically about the past, present, future, and tying it in to the future that involves that actual job. Can you share your response to that question with us here? Yeah, man. So what's the future? What, what kind of job am I trying to get? Let's say that you're trying to get into like a machine learning engineer role. Yes. Great. So if I was trying to get it into a machine learning engineering role, I would tell them about, hey, in the past, I've always gone the fine line between engineering and data science. Check me out with my data engineering at Google, my full-time suite at Facebook, but now I'm doing all this data science with the book. I realized my passion lies in the intersection of the two, which is basically machine learning engineering. And my current right now, I'm writing a book and I'm helping people and that's great. But I realized I need to go back to my building roots. And that's why a role with your company is perfect, right? So I just tied something, even though my book is not really relevant to machine learning engineering, and I've never been a machine learning engineer, I've just weaved how I've kind of always straddled the line, right? And Harpreet, pretend I'm trying to do product data science, right? So just so I can weave it again. Oh, product data science, I tell you, let's say product data science at a company like Uber, okay? I'm trying to like work on their Uber product. Tell them, hey, look, I've always straddled the line between data and business and product, whether it was what I did on the growth team at Facebook, which was doing data-driven insights to build better products, whether it's some of the data work I did in school or my consumer product startup rap stock, or even this book is an exercise in bringing technical skills and then packaging into a good product, figuring out how to position it and making it sell well. And that's why I want to join your role because product data science is really about using data and using technical insights, but to really drive a product roadmap, to drive some real business outcomes, to be right there out on the forefront. And that's what I've always been doing, something around data, but then some more that has something to do with business. So that's why I want to work for your company in product data science. So I can can spin this whichever ways for all kinds of roles. I mean, I'm lucky to have done a bunch of stuff, which is why one of the first advices is like, hey, just do more shit, like build more projects. You don't know. When I built Rapstock, I didn't know I'd be working in growth engineering. And same way, I didn't think I'd write this data science book when I was studying systems engineering. You know, I, I never, you can't ever really piece these things, but yeah, when you look backwards, it might 
all work itself out. <laughs> yeah, I guess the past is always explainable when you look at it from retrospectively. Yeah. Uh, can you audit my tell me about yourself question? I would love to. So what kind of role are we applying for? So I, I use the same tell me about yourself for pretty much every role that, you know, let's say I'm interviewing for. Uh, so I, I'm hoping that's general enough, but still does a good good job of telling people about myself and, you know, Comet, don't worry. I'm not like interviewing anywhere. So, like, <laughs> so boss, Shout out you're, Comet. Yeah. Yeah, if, you're, if you're listening, uh, don't trip. This is just, you know, I just always. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So what, what, what's your title at Comet right now? I'm a data scientist. Yeah. That's kind of perfect. Always, always my title. Okay. I always thought you were like more of an evangelist too, or that's just on the side. That's both. Uh, that's a little bit of both. That's part of, part of the role that, that I do. Yeah. Part of the role. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's just say you're trying to work as a data scientist at another, like, data science tool company, right? Mm -hmm. I want to hear your pitch because I, I want to say that I know you just said you're keeping it general, but I'm telling you like, you want to make it seem inevitable and inevitable okay. means you can't keep it general. You got to keep it to like, whoa, All this right. guy is was born to be here, right? Like how I told you, I always straddled the line between product and data. That's why I'm here. Like I'm born for this role and okay. it doesn't matter what role it is. Right. So, so yeah, I'm gonna, I'm so, gonna keep yeah. that. I'm gonna keep that in mind now, and 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 kind of blend this. Yeah, into so point, I, I so. gotta push you a little bit hard, yeah. you know. You, yeah, you gotta. You can't, you can't keep it general with me, sir. Okay, all right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna on, on the spot, kind of kind of bend stuff here. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's do it. So so any anytime this question is asked, I start with this. Look, I've defined my whole career around helping people make better decisions. The way I see myself doing that is by being on a team that develops data products that allow people to interact with data and information, so they can see the whole picture instead of just parts of it. And, and what I mean by data products, it could be anything from a model serving predictions, a dashboard, a static report, piece of written content, just anything that's going to facilitate the decision-making process of my end user. And the way I see myself being a contributing member on a team like this is through what I consider to be a unique combination of education, technical skills, experience, and some of my extracurricular activities. In terms of education, I studied math, statistics, economics at the undergraduate, graduate level. I've taken a number of actuarial exams, so I feel like I've got a really strong theoretical background and all that stuff. Uh, it's also given me the, a solid foundation to learn anything else that I need to learn on the job. Like I'm not afraid of anything. You could throw any Greek symbol at me. I'm not even, not even worried. In terms of technical skills, I think coding is a mindset. I think that's something that I tend to be a natural at. It's just something that really clicks at me because I know it's less about the syntax and more about the actual structure and, and thinking through the problem. Currently, Python, bread and butter language of choice. On the side, I'm learning Solidity. You know, I'm really into smart contracts and then trying to get into blockchain technology, things like that. And, you know, the usual data science stack I'm very proficient at, you know, SQL, uh, Pandas, NumPy, Secular, all that stuff. Really, really good with that. In terms of my experience, I've got a wide range of experience ranging from working as an actuary in an insurance company, ranging to being a biostatistician at a pharmaceutical company, to more traditional data science roles at e-commerce companies and also in manufacturing. And I feel like this breadth of experience has, you know, just being exposed to all these different types of problems has given me the ability to map a uh, problem strategy, sorry, a solution strategy to a problem statement. On the side, I've done a number of interesting things, most notable of which is my podcast, The Artist of Data Science. I also create a lot of written content and long-form content as well through uh, blogs and, and things like that. And what this has given me uh, the opportunity to do practice copywriting and practice persuasive speaking and, and giving presentations and engaging with people. And it ties back to my mission of helping people make better decisions. Because if I'm going to be in a role like this, where I'm helping evangelize a product, where 
I'm helping advocate for a product. I'm going to help people make the right decision, which is using your product. Great. Should I put you on blast? Yeah, put me on blast, man. I don't <laughs> care. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Okay, cool. So one, it was too long. Okay. Okay. Two, it kind of went all over the place. So let's, let's like rework it. Right. So I wish we could like, you know, and this is where we do one-on-one coaching, but like, let's start from the top. Right. I like that. You said you help people make better decisions with data. Like that's something that's driven you. Well, tell me about, I mean, but then I saw, I heard a lot of hollow words. I wanted to hear right after that, you know, it started out as a biostatistician for that industry. Then I found myself doing actuarial work where I help this insurance company do this. And most recently I've been helping drive the product roadmap at Comet. That's kind of, you know, I just neatly said the same thing, but I actually put it tangible, right? Cause I let you name drop that you've actually done stuff rather than, Hey, I like this and this, you know, and I'm like, Oh wow. Like you've helped people, you know, and you, you know, in three different things. And that, and that also subtly tells me like, Oh yeah, this wide range of problems you've solved. Right. Which is, which is already great. It's like, oh, wow. You know, what does biostatistician have to do with actually have to do with data scientists at this kind of ML company? Oh, yeah, he's helping people do this, right? The last part is all the stuff that you do extracurricularly is great. I think tying that in with like, okay, but I realized, you know, midway in my career, helping people make better decisions, it doesn't just stop at my own company and team. I'm passionate about helping the community at large. So I run a really popular podcast that has 600 episodes and 20,000 views. I also have 40,000 LinkedIn followers where I've really written long form content about helping how we can use data to drive better decisions. Now, I want to work at your company, Optimizely or this, because you guys are all about an analytical tool that marketers use to make better decisions with data because Optimizely is all about A-B testing, right? Like pretend we were interviewing for this, right? So I just... Ne- tied it all in. And I kind of neatly wrapped in these extra curriculars, which are great, but they are extra and kind of tied that back in with like, oh, I do something more than my normal work, but I didn't go too long. And then blockchain solidity, I would just like cut that out. Cause if I was a hiring manager, truth, truth be told, I'd be like, ah, oh, this guy's gonna be trading shit coins all day. You know, I'm just like, ah, oh, that's great. But like, he's going to quit on me. He's going to make some crypto millions, just quit on me. Right. So I would have just like solidity confuses me in, in that sense of your arc of like, building, you know, I, I would have cut that part out. So I guess, do you see how I kind of just narrowed it down? And I think another thing is you mentioned Python, you mentioned your stack, right? And that's, I'm going to ask you about that later. This is remember that first question about you, 90 seconds, we just got on a call like, oh, Harpreet, I saw your resume, but like, tell me a little bit more about yourself. That's where you just keep it cool. Like, oh yeah, I did some bio, I did actuarial and I do a lot of cool stuff on the side before you tell me about your stack and how you do this and this and this tool. And yeah. So it just gives me a little bit more flavor to you. So keep it short. And then, then, then we'll have that conversation like, oh yeah, tell me more about the types of decisions you want to drive or tell me about your stack or how you've been doing it, you know? So. so when we have the interview and we're answering that, tell me about yourself, then just assume that the stuff that got you into that interview in the first place does not need to be mentioned in the tell me about yourself, because obviously if you didn't have that, you wouldn't be here right now. Right. No, it, it does need to be mentioned, but it doesn't need to be mentioned in detail. It needs to be mentioned in terms of a story, mm-hmm. right? So I read your resume, but what's the story? I saw you on paper. I'm like, this guy is jumping from biostats to actuary to this. And on the side, he's doing blockchain and he's writing random blogs. Is he trying to be a writer? Is he trying to be a content? Like what's happening? 
But when you weave the story, like, yo, I've just always been helping people with data. I've switched my industries a few different times and midway. And then that, that rationalizes this other thing. Like, oh, this guy's going to do no work. He's going to talk a big game and go on his podcast. You're not going to do shit for us. Suddenly you explain it away with, oh, and I realized like, it's about leveling up my team and community. And that's why I also do this part, but it really is born out of my past. Then it suddenly starts to click. So I do think you can name drop a few things, right? So I'm not shy to name drop, Hey, I worked at Facebook and Google and how it got me there. But I don't just say, Oh, like Facebook, I worked on these, 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 these projects We're using this tech stack. I try to weave how, wow, it's inevitable that I go from Facebook to your company you know, that's what I'm trying to show. It's the inevitability that, oh, the future is exactly what you're offering me because look at how neatly the past and present line up to that future. Does that make sense? Yeah, and man. to keep that story, you don't want to talk about blockchain and this and this. So, I, you know, I don't talk about for my ML engineering role, the year I was non-technical running marketing. I don't talk about that. Right. And same way for product data science, maybe I won't talk about, yeah, I won't talk about that year. Or maybe I won't talk so much about how I was more of a software engineer at Facebook. I'll just st- stick to the part about how growth engineering is data-driven. And I wrote lots of SQL. I want to talk about the fact that my title wasn't data scientist. It was software engineer. I'll stick to the fact that I wrote a bunch of SQL and did a bunch of A-B tests, which is the bread and butter of a product data scientist. You know, So you see how I'm still name dropping it and giving a little flavor, but not going too much and just keeping it casual, trying to tell a story. And then once we dig in, we dig in. Absolutely. Thank you. Speaking of product, that's something that it, it seems to be elusive, this product sense. So yes, yeah, what, man. What is this? What does product sense mean? Like, what is it? Why are people afraid of it? Why does it seem like such a difficult skill? Yeah. So this is really popular by companies like Facebook, Amazon, Google. They have this role called product data scientist, which is, hey, you're not sitting in the back just writing some crazy fancy ML algorithm. You're actually working with a product manager and a tech lead to figure out what's the roadmap for our product. So it's a more, you know, cross-functional data science type role. And it's something that Facebook hires an army of, which is and interviews a ton of people for, which has kind of brought it into the more the limelight. And then similarly, there are these elusive elite, not elusive, elite APM programs, associate product manager programs at Google and Facebook and a few other companies that have also brought this idea of having product sense into the limelight. So what is product sense? It's just about how well you're able to think about building good products, because ultimately you're cutting all this data, but if you don't understand like what's your PM optimizing for, or what is Facebook as an org organizing for, how are you going to find the data-driven insights to drive the product if you just don't even know how products are made, right? So product sense interviews are popular at these companies and they really just try to sense like some of your product and businessy skills, something that's less about modeling and more about like, why are we modeling the thing we're modeling or why are we measuring this metric? Like what's a good metric? So that's another, that's probably the most common product interview question is, hey, you're a PM on Facebook dating. What kind of metrics would you use to track the success of the product? You know, and someone might say a bad answer, like, oh, the number of marriages. It's like, well, how's Facebook ever going to know how many people got married from Facebook dating? And that's going to happen years down the line. I can't be tracking this fake, like this metric that's lagging by two years that I can't even capture. Let's talk about the number of actual matches we made or the number of like conversations we had or phone number exchanges. These are better metrics to say, hey, there was a good conversation. 
and they exchange a phone number, which lends me to believe that they move their conversation off platform, they're going to meet. That's what I want to optimize for. And if you've ever been on a dating app, which you probably haven't because you've been married, but uh, a lot of these apps often ask like, hey, like, did you meet somebody or they like kind of track using a regex or some little NLP, like did a phone number exchange happen? So I'm just trying to give you this flavor of like, hey, these are these open-ended questions of like, hey, like, how do you think through a problem? Like what metrics would you track? They're so hard to answer because, well, my school didn't tell me this. They told me about AUC. They told me about precision and recall. They didn't tell me about these dating metrics apps, you know? So that's why they're kind of tough to ask, but they really show like if you've been around the block and in the book, I talk about different ways to actually build product sense as well as a bunch of product interview questions that data scientists actually been asked. Speaking of dating sites, fun fact, I met my wife on shadi.com. I don't know if that's still a thing or not. I think it is absolutely a thing. Yeah. That's like the Indian dating website. That's awesome. Yeah. And I met my girlfriend on hinge. So yeah, that's the modern day shadi.com. Yeah. So love that. So how do we build our product sense then? Yeah, man, you build it by looking critically around about the things around you. So when I interned at Nest Labs, which is a part of Google, they make those like Nest thermostats, those smart IoT thermostats and cameras and a whole bunch of other home goods. The CEO, he, he sat us all these interns in on there in the first week. And that CEO, his name is Tony Fidel, and he was named, called the father of the iPhone because he helped spearhead the iPhone at Apple. So he was a direct report under Steve Jobs. And he's the father of the, um, sorry, not iPhone, iPod. Yeah. Ah, now why am I forgetting this? Uh, I think it's the iPod. He's the father of iPod, not the iPhone. But anyways, big, big deal reported right to Steve Jobs. And he sat us all down. He showed us this apple that had a sticker on it. You know, you get fruit and it has that little sticker. You have to peel it off and you kind of like scratch at it and you have to rinse it. It's kind of gross. It's like, why is there a sticker, right? He's like, dude, guys, just think critically around about the things around you. Look at this sticker. Does that do anything for me as a consumer? Like, why is it there? We're not, it's not a barcode that we're scanning. It's just a nuisance that I have to go through before I can eat this juicy, delicious apple. It's something disgusting and it just ruins the look of the apple to scratch it off and you like mess up the scratching and then you've dented your apple a bit. So I think like, I mean, I'm just trying to show you this idea of like, you can see the world differently once you, you know, and I talk about specific tangible ways to do that in the book, but it's really just building your product sense is about thinking critically around about the products you use. And then also doing some research into the business behind the product, which can help un- make you understand some of the design decisions that were made. So go read for a company like Uber or Lyft, they're public. You can go read the quarterly earnings reports and see what are the metrics they track and what are the business issues they face. Once you understand that, you might understand better how does surge pricing work and like why is surge pricing important and how does it help them achieve their core metrics that they're tracking, you know? So I think doing more research into your products that you use, including the business side, helps you understand the product decisions that were made. And then also just, hey, we're surrounded products all day long. Think about why is each button there, each knob there, and what what's the thing that this thing is optimizing for, right? So on a UI, on a UI, sorry, on a GUI or UI, there's so many buttons, right? And honestly, at a company like Google, just you go on google.com, 
probably each little part of it has a dedicated product manager and product team and probably even data scientist. Whether it's like the doodle of the day, whether it's the search bar, whether it's the I'm feeling lucky, whether it's the auto suggestions, whether it's like the login log out mechanism, they have PMs and data scientists behind each of those things. But you got to think about like, hey, what's this button doing? What are the trade-offs they're facing? And what, how is that actually driving Google's bottom line revenue? Like, what are they trying to optimize with search? Oh, they're trying to drive search ads. Oh, wow. How does that work? How do they make money there? Oh, it's about contextual targeting. Oh, okay. So that's, that's why we have auto suggest because they're trying to make you, you know, trying to guess your intent and then drive you to pages that actually match your intent so they can actually show you ads that are relevant. Because if they're showing you crappy search results, they're going to show you crappy ads at the same time. So just thinking critically. We love that. Thank you so much. So I guess, um, what, just so so people could kind of research this or just think about it. I know you talked about some metrics there, but I guess what's what's like the number one metric you see, or sorry, the number one like product sense question that you see being asked? Yeah, it's usually what are the metrics you'd use to track blah, where blah would be Uber search pricing algorithm, and if it was being successful, or what are the metrics you track for YouTube's search functionality, right? So maybe for search, maybe it's not time spent searching. Maybe that's the anti-goal. Maybe if your search really worked well, people wouldn't use your search a lot. They'd just find the results, right? But in something else like Facebook dating, maybe it is time spent. And actually that's, that's wrong. It's probably not time spent for Facebook dating. Let's say for the YouTube, what the team that's actually showing you videos, maybe there it's about time spent. Oh, we want to optimize for the amount of video you actually watch. But on Facebook dating, Do I want you spending even more time swiping away without a match? No, maybe there the metric to optimize for is matches formed or the number of matches you actually exchange your phone number with or had conversation that lasted more than 10 messages back and forth. Maybe that's the metric. So it depends on each company. But as you can see, there's not like no one North Star metric for everything. I mean, it's usually money and but I think money is not always necessarily the right thing to track because you wouldn't say like, oh, what would you track for YouTube's search algorithm? Oh, money. You know, it's like usually you have to go a little bit more niche down. Same way, Facebook dating. If this is a beta product and you're trying to measure the success of Facebook dating, it's probably not money because they know if the product works well, you're going to stay in the ecosystem and you're going to see ads somewhere else. But maybe they're not going to just shove ads in Facebook dating itself. So maybe, especially if it's early days, you don't say that the ad, you know, dating product is doing well because we showed you a bunch of ads. We say it's doing well because you're actually meeting people that are high quality and having good conversations with them, right? So you can see how it's different everywhere. And that's why these are pretty interesting, fun questions that people will mess up. Now, I know it sounds like I'm doing an effortlessly jumping between products and mentioning metrics, but it's so easy for people to be like, oh yeah, number of marriages for Facebook dating or like for YouTube search. Oh, it's time spent because time spent, you know, YouTube always wants you to spend more time on everything. Well, probably not the search bar. That's probably the opposite, right? So there's nuances here, which you can get through practice. So that's the book. Practice yeah. makes perfect. <laughs> Definitely. And yeah, I love the section in the book about the product sense uh, questions. I've you know, come across a lot of resources for data science interviews and stuff like that. I've And you know, full 30-something pages dedicated strictly to product sense. I've never seen that done anywhere else. And it is extremely, extremely valuable. Uh, so I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, you guys check it out. AC Data Science Interview. Nick, I know we're running long on time. Are you still good? Yeah. Go for like another five, 10 minutes? Yo, dude, I'm chilling. So have me on as long as you want. 
Awesome, man. So we're going to do this final question before we go to a random round. So this is like the the last formal question I like to ask. And it is, it's 100 years in the future. What do you want to be remembered for? I mean, this is going to sound kind of cheesy, but just helping a lot of people. And it's not something I actively think about because honestly, I just do whatever is the most fun for me in the day and moment. And honestly, for me, what's fun is helping people and creating content and doing data science stuff. And I feel like everything I work on is generally net good. So it's, you know, I just want to be known for helping people. Yeah. And it, and it might not be so direct as like, oh, I ran a charity, but it might be just like, oh, helping job seekers in data. You know, maybe that's, maybe that's what it is, but at least it's helping somebody do something. Yeah. That's a great way to think about it, man. Cause I mean, you can give money to charity. Great whatever that's a discrete amount helps charity but if you help people get jobs and they have the means to go help other people that just multiplies like the efforts right you know what i mean absolutely and you know what i believe i believe the more data scientists we have the better decisions get are made for society and whether it's in private sector public sector everywhere we can benefit from data and data-driven decision making to just optimize all systems increase prosperity so if i can just help more people get those jobs, talented people find their way into those positions to drive these systems that will yield more optimized systems and just like more prosperous future than I've done my part, you know? So even though it's a very small thing I'm doing, I feel like I'm still able to contribute to towards society by helping solve this one piece. Absolutely love it. Thank you so much, Nick. Let's jump into the random round now. First question is, in your opinion, what do most people think within the first few seconds of meeting you for the first time? <laughs> I'm pretty passionate. I'm loud and I'm short. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I guess that's something people might get surprised by if, if you know, we've been digital for so long. First time you meet somebody in person, right? Like yeah. people are usually sitting in front of a computer and like, oh my God, like you are not the, the size I thought you'd be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you have this awesome blog post about books that you always bring up in conversations. Uh, one of them is, you know, written by one of probably my absolute favorite author, one of my absolute favorite authors, uh, and one of my favorite books. That's Anti Fragile by Nassim Taleb. Uh, talk to us about the three main takeaways you've uh, gotten from that book. Yeah, man. Just I love Nassim Taleb, the book Anti Fragile. So what what it's told me is set up my life in a way that I have low downside and then high upside, right? So writing a book, if it flopped, it flops. If it works, great. Like this might be, you know, still in stores 10 years from now, 20 years from now, maybe a whole generation of data scientists in this decade could use this book to break through. And, you know, if no one likes a book, whatever, I wasted some time, but it's not nearly as important as how much impact it's had for thousands of people, actually more than thousands of people who've read the book and spent many, many hours, which took me a lot of hours. But like now, if you just look at the number of readers times the amount they've, they've read the book, it's far surpasses the amount of time I've spent into the book. And yeah, that's like a high upside, low downside kind of thing. Another one is avoid risk of ruin, which is basically this, don't do things that I can't recover from. So I don't bike in a city because if a car hits me, I will die and the car will feel bad. And that's about it. And I will die. And there's no way to recover from that. So I'm just like always, you know, I prefer to drive or I will walk, but I will never bike anywhere because I realize, you know, someone else is not paying attention. They get a dent on their car, their insurance premium goes up. And what happens to me on a bike? I die. 
right? And I, I can't come back from that, or I have a life-threatening injury. It's not worth it for me, right? So I avoid very dangerous situations. I have very little upside. Oh, great. I got to work five minutes faster. And the downside is, hey, there's a one in a thousand chance I die. And I literally just, that's it, game over at age 20 something. And this happens in San Francisco all the time. Any major city, people in their prime will die. And people don't talk about this, but I'm, I'm a big proponent of it because it's just not correct risk-taking in my opinion. Uh, I know, I know I sound lame for just talking like that because I'm scared of riding a bike, but it's just how I think. And the last thing is, you know, it, you know, anti-fragile, they talk a lot about the Lindy effect, which is things that have been around for a long time will stay for a while. So where I can, I tried to make my book more future-proof and think about like, hey, how can I make this more stand the test of time? That's been something that's really impacted my life. And secondly, to pay more attention to practices, you know, things that we like say are old wives tales or home remedies or just alternative medicine. Like I think there's a lot there and I think a lot of ancient wisdom is there. And I just try to respect that more and do those kinds of treatments and not just discount something. I was like, Oh, people have done this for a thousand years. We don't know why it works, but I'm going to say, uh, it doesn't work. I'm going to maybe trust that this has been passed down. It's Lindy for a reason. I'm going to go do that thing. So yoga, I'm all for it. Meditation, same way. Things like that, I'm not skeptical of. Yeah, Seem Taleb, man, he's an awesome, awesome author. He's uh, uh, somebody I've been probably over the last four months just been absorbed in all his work. I, I get real weird when I read stuff. So, like, I'll read the person's book, but then I'll also, like, you know, when I have free time, just watch their lectures or whatever on YouTube. Yeah. So, like, literally, the only thing I've been on over the last few months has been Nassim Taleb. He kept mentioning uh, Mandelbrot in his book. So I was like, all right, let me see what this Mandelbrot guy is all about. And I got this misbehavior markets. But yeah, that book, you know, as somebody who loves probability theory, like fundamentally love probability theory, it's, I'm not like great at it. Don't give me like, like yeah. questions to solve, but I understand it. I grok it really well. He changed the way I think about probability theory in yeah. some very fundamental ways. So he changed the way I think about risk. Yeah, and yeah. risk management, which honestly, startups, entrepreneurship, it's a it's a big exercise in, hey, let's go do things with high upside mm-hmm. and manage risk on the downside. And yeah. it's changed how I treat my own career. Yeah. There's also this, he's putting out what's called a technical inserto. So he's got the first series out, first book in the series out. The statistical consequences of fat tales yeah. for free on archive. It's in, it's a technical book, but in typical Nassim Taleb style. So I highly encourage everybody checking that out. I'm, I'm going to check it out right after. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So what are you currently reading? Yeah. David Goggins book, Can't Hurt Me. It's about mental toughness. He's like a Navy SEAL badass. I know it's kind of a basic, <laughs> basic book choice, but it is what I'm reading these days. So yeah. Yeah, his life story is insane, man. Can't yeah. hurt me is uh, it's crazy. So, like, one of my favorite musical artists is somebody called Akira the Don. Probably somebody I've been listening to. I think I've heard of him. Yeah, uh, he's dope. Dude. He's amazing. So he he takes a spoken word and splices the beat meter. Sorry, splices the speech, meters it, puts it to a dope beat. And he did this album with just he's done a lot of Naval Ravikant's talks and turned those into albums. But he also did David Goggins, and he's got this. Uh, bit from a Joe Rogan interview and turn it into this song called Taking Souls. That <laughs> mm. is fire. I'll uh, check it out. And now I remember where I saw Kira the Dawn because this is your top Spotify uh, playlist every, for the year and your Spotify day. rap. I saw it was all I hear the Dawn. <laughs> so now yeah. I got to double check it out because I was giving you a fire emoji because it was like, oh yeah, I like Naval, Naval Ravi Khan. I like these podcasts, yeah. but I didn't realize it's Akira the Dawn who's put some more fresh spin on it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Very yeah. Cool. Speaking of Naval, man, Naval's that 
inhabited my tapestry of my psyche at a very deep level. It's, ever <laughs> since I started listening to him talk about stuff, like I just my life is that yeah stick curve. It's been insane. Yeah. And he talks all about leverage and how writing code and writing words mm-hmm. are super high leverage activities mm-hmm. with a high upside, low downside. And that's why we got the book. That's why I got this content. And that's why on the side we're writing code and building models because that stuff scales and gives you leverage. We live exactly in an right. age of nearly infinite leverage. So I got yeah, this man. crazy idea I'm going to be doing because like, I know I'll never be able to get involved onto the podcast itself. So I'm going to make it a tweet storm podcast. Uh, so I'm just like going through a lot of stuff. And I'm just coming up with the content and I'm just questions to ask uh, that have got to be really unique questions on what he's talking about. And I'm going to put out a tweet storm that will be a podcast interview. It'll be like, I know I'll never get at Naval on the podcast, but if I was these questions I'd ask and then just tag him and everything. We'll see what happens. I think it could work. I wouldn't say yeah. never say never. Um, yeah, yeah, but that, that sounds awesome. Yeah. But then again, it's like, what's the downside? The downside is maybe a few hours of yeah. coming up with questions, but then, okay, well, for that few hours, I get to research all of his thoughts and it's going to help me synthesize it even better. And like, there's no risk to it. Right. And in worst case, he's like, bro, I'm not going to come on your podcast, but I'll hit that with a retweet. And that goes up to like, whatever, hundreds of thousands of followers. And then it's like, okay, great. That's, that's not a bad outcome at all. Yeah, absolutely, man. So that's that's the thing, man. People like, and and when I say people, I I usually mean me from the past before I became me (laughs) today. Uh, I love that. Yeah. It's just, it, scared to do stuff man you know yeah. just do it like there's there's literally there's no no downside like just, yeah, just, do, it. just do it absolutely i'm gonna open up a, a random question generator we'll do a few out of here yep uh, first question what makes you cry a sad bollywood movies or romantic bollywood movies <laughs> but not much else what's the uh, last bollywood movie man i can't remember the names but I've, I, I watch them occasionally yeah if you were a vegetable what vegetable would you be Yo, I like carrots. I would be carrots with a ranch dressing. That's a lot. <laughs> so, okay, th- th- this is, we're going to have to exclude the book from this question, but it is, what have you created that you're most proud of? There's this one song that I made that was absolutely fire that I made in high school, as DJ Lo was saying, that I don't know how I made. And everyone I share it with is like, dude, how does this slap so hard? It's super vulgar, super obscene super like rave club type thing but i made this as a sober 16 year old nerd in my high school in my home but it sounds like something out of a like i don't know crazy like las vegas nightclub and it it, it did really well on soundcloud when i didn't have an audience so yeah you have to send that one over to me man we'll check that yeah out. i'll send that over <laughs> what's the best piece of advice you have ever received don't compete there's a really big internet's big Markets are bigger than ever. There's a way to find your own unique niche. I'm not the world's best data scientist. I'm definitely not the world's best writer. I'm not, you know, but combine the two and you can get a book together and it can actually change people's lives. And I'm also not the best career coach ever, but one of the weird few people who knows data science can write about it and cares about the job part, not the modeling part, not the deep learning part, but just like the job meta aspect of it. And suddenly there's very few to none people doing that. I love that mentality. That's something I swear by. It's like talent stacking, but then beyond talent stacking, it's intersections, finding unique intersections where, okay, yeah. top 25% in this, this, and this. All right. Well, that unique spot, top 25%. And, and your thing is about 
your your LinkedIn handle says escaping competition competition through authenticity. And the truth is I'm not doing this job career stuff to get the bag because I'm just like, this is a niche. I've been giving career advice for a long time. I've just been helping out people reading resumes long before I ever got paid to do it. Years before I was just always interested in this, right? So it's authentic and other people just aren't into this weird little niche. So I run with it. Yeah, that's the like a, a constant struggle for me is that just continuously just being authentic to myself because I could put out and write posts that could get a lot of engagement, but it's like, ah, I don't want to talk about that. Like, yeah. you know, Nick does a better job at it. Daliana does a better job at it than I do. Let them talk about yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah, I love that. If you lost all of your possessions, but one, what would you want it to be? Oh, I need my book. I need my book. I need the IP in here. As long as the book. <laughs> <laughs> that's a cop out answer yeah, yeah that's right because it's not like you can't go and buy it off of amazon for yourself <laughs> all right let, let's skip to the next one then do you ever sing when you're alone what song i sing up my made up songs when i'm very happy it's usually about like why i'm happy or about someone else they're doing something awesome like be like mom you're the best yeah i'll just make a song I sound like a crazy madman but usually the person i'm singing for appreciates it yeah i make up funny random songs all the time especially with like for my son we'll be sitting there just me and him and i just make up songs and he starts singing right after me too it's great yeah let's, let's do one more from here what's your favorite candy i love me a kit kat that bright red kit kat i have them at my events whenever we have a book event i throw on some kit kats that's mm-hmm. usually what i toss people when they answer something right nice <laughs> is it coincidental that the book has the kit kat colors Yes. I think I went from the Supreme look. I was like, ah, it's red and white. So simple. So I kind of took a bit from there. Yeah. More Supreme. <laughs> so before we, uh, before we sign off here, shout out to uh, some friends that were joining us on the live stream. Thank you guys for, for being there. Joe Reese was on. Eric Sims was on. Kenji was on. Aiden Ah was on on YouTube, leaving a lot of great comments. Aiden said that, you know, he he's going to pass a copy of your book to his children and grandchildren when it's time. Uh, and he says that your <laughs> book has gotten 130 reviews on Amazon. Definitely not a waste of time. So definitely a lot of praise is coming from Aiden on the uh, YouTube stream and everybody else joining on LinkedIn. So Nick, how can people connect with you and where can they find you online? Absolutely. Y'all can check me out on LinkedIn, Nick Singh. You can check out the book, acedatascienceinterview.com. It's on Amazon. Um, also on Instagram, I'm DJ Lil Singh. We also have an Instagram for the book and I run a newsletter. So you just look me up and you will find me, Nick Singh. That's it. And Nick is everywhere, you guys. Look him up. Nick, hopefully get you back onto the happy hours one of these days. I uh, would love to have Let's you happy there, man. Nick, thanks so much for taking time out of schedule to come on to the show today, man. It really, really Yeah, thanks for having me. It was really fun. We riffed for a while, so I'm yeah, excited man. to hear this. Yeah. Yeah, man. Absolutely. It's been my pleasure. My friends, remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. See you guys. Bye.